It's 6 p.m. and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Tuesday, October 17th, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jem. State education officials say that next year they plan to introduce legislation to fund educator development that may help improve student performance. The California Report has the story. Then, after a look at local news and weather, the California News Service brings us the latest in controversies and agency expectations in the state's ongoing ordeal with electric truck infrastructure. We close with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. Thousands of migrant families who were separated at the U.S.-Mexico border by the Trump administration will now get some benefits and a shot at asylum. That's under a new agreement between Biden officials and the ACLU to resolve a long-standing lawsuit. KQED's immigration editor Taiki Hendricks reports it will help hundreds of families now in California. The proposed settlement lets reunified families stay in the U.S. for at least three years and apply for permanent protection. It also offers help with housing, legal aid, and mental health services to parents and children who were systematically separated by border agents. Lawyer Lee Gallant led the ACLU's legal team. We will never undo the trauma that's happened to these families or erase this tragic period from United States history. But this settlement is a critical step forward. A federal judge in San Diego must sign off on the deal, which would bar most future separations. It would also require officials to keep working to reunite as many as 1,000 kids still not back with their parents. Meanwhile, more than 100 families are suing individually, seeking monetary damages for their suffering. For The California Report, I'm Taiki Hendricks. State education officials say they plan to introduce legislation next year to fund professional development for educators in an effort to improve student performance. This comes as many California students are experiencing lags in learning, made worse by the pandemic. State Superintendent of Public Instruction Tony Thurman says the training fund could total $500 million and is expected to increase student proficiency in math and reading. Oftentimes, it is hard to talk about state student performance when many of our districts are working individually. We are banking on a strategy that promotes more collective action amongst our districts and what we can do here at a state level to support them. The State Department of Education is also touting recent grants for student literacy and mental health support and investments in universal access to pre-kindergarten. It's clear that artificial intelligence is here to stay. For colleges, this means figuring out how to regulate the use of it, while still encouraging students to engage with the software that will only grow in popularity. Carolyn Jones is an education reporter for CalMatters, and she joins me now to discuss the future of AI in education. Carolyn, welcome. Thank you. So how popular has the use of AI really become among high school students? Well, I think, yeah, like a lot of technology, new technology, there's a novelty factor to it. And I think students are eager to experiment with it and see what it can do and see, you know, how it could help their learning. But then also, you know, I think there's some ethical things that they're also considering about, you know, is this plagiarism? Is it cheating? 
These are all things that are happening in classrooms right now, these discussions. And what is the State Department of Education recommending when it comes to using AI for this demographic? Well, the State Department of Education is recommending that uh, districts, schools, teachers, classrooms, you know, use it and, and teach teach students. This is this really powerful new tool, and it should be in computer science classes. It should be taught in media literacy classes. Um, there's lots of applications for it. And how are college admission offices responding to this uptick in AI use? Well, most colleges and as well as most high schools, for that matter, do have rules against plagiarism. You can't represent someone else's work as your own. And, you know, as we know, AI gathers words from lots and lots of sources. And so in theory, yes, it is, you are stealing content. However, there's a lot of nuance in there. You know, it's probably okay to use AI to kind of brainstorm in some cases. I would say that that might be okay. (laughs) And also there's, you know, AI detection tools and sometimes colleges use those, sometimes they don't, sometimes those tools are not very reliable. So there's a lot of gray area nuance in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there concern that students will be falsely accused of using AI to write prompts? Oh, definitely. Yeah. AI detection tools are not great. I think they're wrong, you know, 20 to 30 percent of the time. Sometimes, you know, they're they're completely wrong. But as we know, the technology is constantly changing and AI is constantly getting better and AI detection tools are getting better. So I think one person we talked to said, you know, it's kind of like this arms race over, you know, who's going to get better faster. Right. And from an equity perspective, who stands to benefit the most from the use of AI in education? Well, that's a really good question. Um, Higher income students, you know, for generations have hired tutors or or gotten assistance with their college applications and their essays. Um, And now we have that assistance available to, to everybody, basically. So there, so in a way, it is a boost for lower income students. But on the flip side, AI itself is kind of rife with bias and misinformation and inherent biases. And so there are equity concerns there as well. What do you think is going to happen to the future of AI and education? What will that look like in the next couple of years? Well, I have to say, as an English major myself, I <laughs> I was like, what AI? This is terrible. <laughs> But the more I learn about it, the more I realize, you know, it's really not going away. It's only going to get better. And I, I think that schools that can figure out a way to incorporate it into lesson plans and learning and really take advantage of the power are going to be better off. I know some school districts have really embraced AI. Um, you know, banning it outright doesn't seem to be a practical solution. And, you know, ultimately it comes down to learning. I mean, you want students to learn how to write and think and express themselves and use their critical thinking skills and not rely on AI to do that. You want them to learn those skills themselves, and hopefully students will see the value of that on their own. That was Carolyn Jones, an education reporter with CalMatters. Carolyn, thank you so much. Sure thing. Thank you for having me. Support for the California Report comes from Guideline. Their automated 401k plans can be set up in 20 minutes. More at guideline.com slash CA. Guideline, the California way to 401k. The Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved children and youth. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, advancing the frontiers of ocean science, exploration, and discovery on the web at schmidtocean.org. 
And that's the California Report for Tuesday, October 17th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Check out the California Report podcast for the latest statewide news. You can subscribe and download wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. The Environmental Protection Agency is expected to adopt new rules for electric-powered trucks, and climate groups and activists are urging the agency to choose the most aggressive option as they build out the charging infrastructure. Coming up, the California News Service has the story. Advocates for electric vehicles and for clean air are urging the Environmental Protection Agency to take aggressive measures as it decides on new emissions rules for medium and heavy-duty electric trucks. With the growth of e-commerce, truck traffic has increased significantly. So the nonprofit CalStart and other agencies offer incentives for companies to offset the cost of building the power and charging infrastructure necessary to spur the transition to zero-emissions trucks. John Bozell is CEO of CalStart. In the future, we can see a society where we have trucks rolling around with zero emission and zero noise, truck drivers being much happier driving an electric truck, and really benefiting communities that have been hard hit by diesel pollution and emission. CalStart is an industry organization whose members include truck manufacturers, transport and delivery companies, cities, and more. The so-called Phase 3 rule would set greenhouse gas emissions standards for heavy and medium-duty vehicles. But the owner-operator Independent Drivers Association told Congress last May that it is concerned about the cost, mileage range, battery weight, and charging availability in the absence of a national charging network. California is making progress with one big EV truck charging station already open near the port of Long Beach and three more coming online in Bakersfield, Gardena and San Bernardino by the end of the year. Salim Yousafzadeh is CEO of Watt EV, the company building those stations. He praises California's efforts to get more electric trucks on the road. So there's all sorts of mandates that are pushing users to adopt zero emissions incentives. But there's a tremendous legwork that has to be in place on the infrastructure side, as well as on the truck manufacturing, being able to produce zero emissions trucks. Public utilities are also mobilizing to expand service to the EV truck charging network. The EPA is expected to finalize the rule by early next year. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. In regional news... According to UBANET, the Nevada County Arts Council has announced that the county's arts and culture industry generated a whopping $66 million in economic activity in 2022. That's according to the newly released Arts and Economic Prosperity 6, which is an economic and social impact study conducted in partnership with Americans for the Arts. That economic activity, which consists of $32 million in spending by nonprofit arts and culture organizations and $34 million in event-related spending by their audiences, supported 1,359 jobs and generated $13 million in local, state, and federal government revenue. Spending by arts and culture audiences generates valuable commerce to local merchants, a value add that few other industries can compete with. Building on its 30-year legacy as the largest and most inclusive study of its kind, Arts and Economic Prosperity 6 uses rigorous methodology to document the economic and social contributions of the nation's nonprofit arts and culture industry as a whole. 
The study demonstrates locally as well as nationally that arts and culture are a critical economic driver of vibrant communities. Eliza Tudor, executive director of Nevada County Arts Council, said that even when acknowledging the arts as a serious industry, we know that, like any valuable cornerstone of society, we must invest in it in order to secure it for our future. She says that the arts are vulnerable to the ebbs and flows in public policy and to shifts in audience participation. Some key figures from Nevada County's AEP6 study include the following. Nevada County's nonprofit arts and culture industry generates $34 million in event-related spending by its audiences. The typical attendee spends $42.36 per person per event, and that's not including the cost of admission. 33.6% of arts and culture attendees were from outside of the county, and each of those attendees spent an average of $73.34. 86.8% of respondents agreed that the activity or venue they were attending was, quote, a source of neighborhood pride for the community. And 87.3% said they would, quote, feel a sense of loss if that activity or venue no longer became available. Ed Schofield, chair of the Board of Supervisors of Nevada County, had this to say about the results of the study. Quote, we are blessed to live in an area known for its prolific arts scene. As locals, we know how lucky we are, while tourists come from around the world to experience it. As elected officials, we understand the critical importance of investing in the arts and acknowledge how central our artists are to the economic health of all citizens. Since it first began backing policies in 2018, the California Fair Plan has grown to become one of the larger providers of home insurance statewide, particularly in high-fire risk areas. On Friday, October 20th, the Nevada County Community Forum will seek to help homeowners and prospective homeowners better understand what exactly the fair plan is, what it offers, and what its future coverage looks like as California continues to mitigate the threat and risk posed by wildfire. Phil Irwin, who is president of Gold Insurance Solutions and a fair plan representative, will join the forum for a discussion on how ready the fair plan is for a wildfire disaster. Formerly as a last resort insurance option, the Fair Plan backed 126,709 policies in its first year. Now, five years later, its coverage has grown 153%, with a total of 320,216 consumers being provided with its home insurance. A good chunk of that growth, 17.4%, has come in 2023 as more large insurance providers like State Farm have stated that they'll no longer write new policies in California. The forum discussion with Irwin, which begins at 10.30 a.m. in the auditorium at Sierra College in Grass Valley, will be hosted by former Sacramento Bee publisher Cheryl Dell. The Grass Valley City Council has been taking active steps in their efforts to build wildfire preparedness in Nevada County. Here's KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza with the details from UBINET. The um, first and only item on the agenda tonight is the under administrative fire resiliency and vegetation management approving an expenditure plan and resolution number 2023-57 of the City Council of the City of Grass Valley declaring a fiscal emergency relating to com combating wildfires and... At a special meeting on Monday, the Grass Valley City Council declared a fiscal emergency in order to place a general tax measure on the March 5th, 2024 ballot. According to Ubinet.com, the Grass Valley City Council declared the fiscal emergency by a unanimous vote due to a, quote, 
lack of necessary funding for fire personnel and land management required to combat wildfires and extreme weather conditions, end quote. This was a necessary first step to place a general sales tax measure on the March 5, 2024 ballot. The city council will vote on placing the tax measure on the primary ballot at their next meeting on October 24th. After several months of council meetings and sparsely attended town halls, the city council gave direction to staff to prepare a ballot measure for the November 2024 election. Then a new agenda was published last Thursday with the sole item of reconsidering the March date. Only six members of the public commented on the proposed tax, with comments ranging from questions about Measure E spending, contractors questioning tax implications, suggestions on best practices for vegetation management, suggestions to use other grant funding, and a comment expressing support for the reduction of the proposed tax from the original half percent to the current three-eighths percent. Grass Valley's election cycle is normally synced with the November general election, but waiting until November would delay receiving any revenue from the proposed tax, if it passes, until 2025. To go outside the normal election cycle, the city council had to declare this fiscal emergency. Again, that's from Ubinet. You can read the full article at ubinet.com regional. Turning now to a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, Tonight, clear with a low around 52. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 77. Wednesday night, clear with a low around 55. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, clear with a low around 36. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 75. Wednesday night, clear with a low around 42. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight, clear with a low around 57. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 88. And Wednesday night, mostly clear with a low around 58. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Up next, we bring you another of Mark Cunaberti's commentaries in which he regularly covers the world of finance, economics, and the stock market. This time, he explores a slightly different topic, rats, the cost of pest control, and the damage that these rodents can do to both your household and your vehicles. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name's Mark Cunaberti. We often go into the weeds on economic issues here in Money Matters. Today, instead of going into the weeds, however, we'll go down the rat hole. Literally, one wouldn't think that rats have anything to do with economics, but these furry little bastards just had a sizable economic effect on my budget when they chewed away at not one, not two, but three of my car's electrical systems. I had no idea rats held an affinity for wiring, but they do, and it cost me over two grand in total to fix all three cars. All three cars were covered with one of those car covers at one time or another, and that was the only similarity between them. My daughter was away at college, so I covered her mod 
paused it for a few months. The other two cars I cover to preserve the paint since they don't get driven more than once a week or so. I do have a monthly pest service, but it wasn't until the car's warning lights came on and we got the cars up on a rack that we discovered why the various electrical systems went out. The rodents had munched through various wires and harnesses on all three of my cars. It was then I called the pest company and they informed me that covered cars can become homes to rats seeking shelter. Rats need to sharpen their teeth and they did so on my vehicles, costing me a potload of money. That got me thinking about my monthly services in general and the ones I have, which are few, but it can be economically viable in certain cases to have a monthly service versus calling a company every time you have a problem. The three monthly services I have are pest control, a home warranty, and a pool service. I have good reasons for having all three. I once had rats in my house in Marin County, and you never just have one rat. They infested the walls before I even knew what happened. I tried trapping them myself, and that turned out to be a nightmare. We tried poison, and the rats died inside the walls. What a cluster that was. If you have a bad pest problem, or a rat or a mouse shows up, you have to address it immediately, obviously. If you don't have a monthly service, you have to schedule a one-time service call. They'll likely charge you up for the visit just to come out along with the actual service charge. If they have to come back out, bang, another fee. Pretty much the same with a lot of service contractors. In contrast, I pay the pest guys about 43 bucks a month for whatever I need, whenever I need it. I call them anytime and they come out the next day and they take care of everything. No questions asked and no bill. They even have non-toxic solutions, so I'm good with that. On the pool service, I guess I could do that myself, but I had small children in the house and I don't want the chemicals around. With all the businesses I have, I'm a very busy guy. I just don't have time to balance the pH and various chemicals and I suck at it anyway. I'm told that if you get the wrong pH or chemical imbalance in your pool, you can possibly stain the bottom and the sides of the pool as well as damage the equipment. So the monthly service fee also made sense for our family. Finally, I have a home warranty service. I pay about 150 a month, up from about 60 bucks a month when I started it 15 years ago. There's that inflation again. There is now a $100 charge every time I call, but over the years I have had almost every appliance in my house replaced, as well as a couple of well pumps a heater, and a pool pump. There is no doubt, at least in my mind, I have saved tons of money and stress using this service. I will continue to have all these three contracts as they make economic sense because they have saved me time, money, and stress over the decade and a half I have used them. Whether you decide any monthly services for your home maintenance requires a bit of research and some simple math. Taking a few minutes to see what contract services are available on a monthly basis versus calling someone out every time you have a problem may be a worthwhile endeavor. I'm watching the market so you don't have to. Remember, this newscast is expressed in my opinion only and is not the opinion of this radio station, its staff, management, or underwriters. I hold a BA in economics with honors 1979 and California insurance license OAL34249. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name is Mark Kuhnberg. That's our newscast for this Tuesday, October 17th. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and the Nevada City Farmers Market. 
Saturdays, 8.30 a.m. to 1 p.m., Robinson Plaza and Union Street now through mid-December. Featuring sustainably grown food from local farmers, crafts, artisanal offerings, also live music, and EBT accepted. ncfarmersmarket.org And Sun River Solar, family-owned local solar contractor since 2008. Providing solar and battery installations for homes and businesses wanting energy independence and backup power during utility outages. Specializing in PG&E connected systems for the foothills. SunRiverSolar.com Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening Newscast is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Jem. Have a great night. Thank you.